your kind of Bibles or tablets or whatever else, turn to Luke 17, uh, Luke 17, verse 11, just so that we are there and ready. Luke 17, verse 11. We're going to go through for the rest of this term, the kind of Luke 17 onwards, and uh, this is the first one of those. I do hope you had a good New Year and Christmas, whatever you were doing, wherever you were. Uh, We went away this Christmas as a family. We rented a house in Suffolk. Uh, Me and Jane, the three girls, Ed, my father-in-law, Pete, and the dog. And uh, we found that our favorite game this holiday, because we nearly always have a favorite game on each holiday, our favorite game this holiday was Family Fortunes. Does anyone remember Family (laughs) Fortunes? If That's right. If you don't remember... This was where you basically have two teams and a hundred people from the great British public are asked questions and you basically have to give the top five answers that the great British public gave. The funniest moment of the whole game was when the question was, name something that you make with dough. Name something that you make with dough. And it was my father-in-law Pete's turn to guess. He could have said bread. Right? Would have been top answer. He could have said dough, which was the second answer, which is a bit weird, but then the great British public are a bit weird. I don't know that you really make dough with dough, but hey, um, you know, that's what it says on the card. He could have said sourdough. He could have said Play-Doh. But no, Pete, 100 people asked, you want the top one, Pete? Name something that begins that you can make with dough. Nougat. That was his answer. Got no idea where that came from at all. But it certainly had us in fits of laughter for about two hours afterwards. The saddest part of the game was actually there was a question on it that said, name the five most inappropriate places to laugh. Second on the survey was at a funeral, which I can understand. Guess what the first, the top answer was? Church. So I'm glad you nearly laughed at my new girl <laughs> story. It is sad though, isn't it? Revealing though, eh? I thought it was interesting. Okay, this morning uh, we're beginning this new preaching series. It's the, it's the start of a new year. I suppose the start of a year is a, traditionally a kind of time when we think about the coming year. Maybe we assess 2020. Uh, maybe we think what are our aims, our hopes, our ambitions for the new year. I wonder what you would put at the top of that list. And I don't really mean things like ending poverty, injustice, famine, wildfires in Australia, amazing as all those would be. I mean really something much more, you know, much more personal. What would you change, in a sense, in yourself? What would you change about your character? What would you be more like, or maybe what would you be less like uh, as you go through this year? I wonder what you would put at the top of that list. Well... I really want to, I suppose, make the case this morning for something to trump that. Got to be careful using the word trump these days, haven't you? But anyway, uh, something to trump that, something to go ahead of that. And really that thing I want to say is thankfulness. Thankfulness. And specifically, thankfulness towards Jesus for who he is and what he's done. Okay? Not just general thankfulness, but thankfulness towards Jesus for who he is and what he has done. 
So let's read together Luke 17, 11 to 19. It may well come up on the screen behind us. It says this. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleaned? Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would speak into our hearts and speak into our minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to go through this passage. We're going to make sure that we understand what is going on. So Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. He's heading uh, towards the city where the Jews live and he's going through some border towns. Some towns on one side is where the Jews lived and on the other side is where the Samaritans lived in Samaria. And the Jews and the Samaritans, well, they hated each other. They didn't associate with one another. And as Jesus is going down the road, kind of between these two nations, if you like, he's met by this group of lepers. Some are Jews, and one at least, maybe more, we don't know, was a Samaritan. And the reason why they meet him on the outskirts of the town was because lepers, once you had leprosy, you were excluded or ostracized by your own people. Both the Jews excluded their own people and the Samaritans excluded their people. And if you got leprosy, you were forced to go and live away from where everyone else lived. And so they come to Jesus, it says, on the outskirts of the town because they're not allowed into the town. And they stand, it says, at a distance and shout to him because they're not allowed to go near anyone who doesn't have the same disease that they have. See, there was no cure for leprosy. And by leprosy, really, we mean a range of skin conditions. But, and pe so people didn't know how contagious they were. They just knew that it spread by touch. And they knew that lots of people who got skin diseases ultimately died from them. And so you were kicked out of your home. You were kicked out of your family. You were kicked out of your community and made to go and live on the outskirts with other people. Can you imagine that? Imagine if you went to the doctors, yeah, 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 you've got a skin disease. Off you go. That's really what had happened to these guys. And so strange as it may sound, leprosy had this effect of breaking down some social divisions and raising others. People became separated from their own communities and their own families and ending up living with and associating with people that they would never normally associate with. Which just goes to show the extent of the separation that was demanded by their own people that basically they were happy for them to go and live with their hated enemies 
as long as they didn't live with them and risk passing on the disease. So this is a heartbreaking picture. You mustn't think, oh yeah, you know, 10 people came and they had slightly bad legs. 10 people came and they, you know, just, you know, had a bit of a dodgy heart. Now this is a heartbreaking picture of these 10 lepers, Jews and Samaritans, scratching a living on the outside of town, meeting Jesus because they can't go into town. And they shout at him because they know they've been told you can't, you can't get physically close to anyone who, who isn't like you, otherwise we'll put you to death. And they're crying out to him to have pity on them. And Jesus sees them and he has pity on them and he tells them, go show yourself to the priest. Because back in these days, if you had a disease like this that made you unclean, it was the priest who declared that and meant that, in a sense, you were excluded from living with your community. So it was the priest who could, in a sense, inspect you and declare you now to be clean, and therefore, you could now go back to living with your community and with your family. So Jesus sends them off to go and see the priest. And the Bible says that as they're on their way to go and see the priest, they all get healed. Can you imagine that? You're 10 lepers and you're all walking with leprosy to go and see the priest. And suddenly you take one more step and you're all healed. Miraculous, completely life-changing for them. And as they went, they were cleansed. And presumably the priest sees them and he declares them to have been healed. And so they're readmitted back into their families, back into their homes, back into their communities. And the verse says that one of them comes back to Jesus and he's praising God for what's happened in a loud voice. He's overjoyed. He's been healed. God's healed him. He doesn't seem to care who knows it. And he throws himself at Jesus' feet and thanks him, which is completely appropriate, bearing in mind what Jesus has done. But what's surprising, and you hear it in Jesus' voice, is the man lying at Jesus' feet expressing gratitude and thanks is not one of the Jews, but it's one of the Samaritans. The Jews are supposed to be the people of God. They're the ones who basically believe the Messiah is going to come and he's going to bless them and heal them. He's not going to bless and heal and associate with Samaritans. Samaritans were the enemy of the people of God. The Messiah was going to make sure that the Samaritans and every other nation on earth bowed the knee to the Jews because they were the people of God. And yet, and yet, the only one who comes back to give praise and thanks is not a Jew, it's a Samaritan. And Jesus says, where are the other nine? Weren't all ten cleansed? Which is a fair point. All ten got healed. Only one came back to say, thank you. But Jesus says to this one Samaritan who comes back, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Now there is some dispute about what exactly Jesus means here. Was he talking about the man's physical healing? In other words, that the man's faith enabled him to be healed of leprosy? Or was he talking about the man's salvation? That actually his faith has made him well in that he's now, if you like, restored to God. Which one is he talking about? Healing? Or is he talking in a sense about spiritual healing and salvation? Personally, I believe he's talking about the man's salvation. 
that actually this man, who the day before was about as far away from being saved as you could imagine, he's a Samaritan and he's a leper. He's from a nation that doesn't worship, that worships false gods, knows nothing of Israel's God, and he's even been kicked out of his own community. That's how he was the day before. And yet now, he's put his faith in the true God, in the one God, in Israel's God, in the God of, of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's just actually healed him. So the word well here could refer to his physical illness, but the text says that they were healed on their way to the priest. While they were going to the priest, while they still had leprosy, as they're traveling on the way, they all get healed. In other words, Jesus has healed them while they were going. It's Jesus who has had pity on them. Jesus who has healed them. It's Jesus who has exercised his faith that the Father, by the power of the Spirit, would perform a mighty miracle as they went to the priest. Because it's Jesus who sent them to the priest. It wasn't like he was surprised, like, I'll go to the priest, just see how that works. No, no, Jesus sent them to the priest because he knew his father was going to heal them. It's Jesus' faith, I believe, that got them healed. And that phrase, your faith has made you well, can also be correctly translated as, your faith has saved you. Which I think fits much better because this man now comes back and he's praising God and he's a Samaritan, and he's thanking Jesus, and he's falling at his feet. See, I think what we're seeing here is that Samaritan got healed, and he got saved. He got healed through Jesus' faith. He got saved when he put his faith in Jesus. Now, I'm not going to fall out with you over it if you don't believe that, but that's just what I think is what is going on here. It's quite an amazing story, isn't it? This morning, what I want to really think about, I want to think about... The nine and the one. I want to think about these ten. The nine and the one. What do they have in common? Then I want to think about the nine and what we can learn about why they did what they did, in a sense. Or why they didn't do what they should have done. Why they acted as they did. Then I maybe want to think about the one, why he acted as he did. See what we can learn from it this morning. So let me just think about, if you like, these ten. The nine and the one they have in common? Well, we don't know a huge amount about them, except there were Jews, there were Samaritans, at least one Samaritan, may have been more, we don't know. I suppose what we can assume is that before they got leprosy, they lived normal lives, like you and I. They had jobs, they had homes, they had families, they had kids, mums, dads. They had their place in Jewish life, and the Samaritans, he had his place in Samaritan life. I mean, there's nothing to suspect or to say that they were anything in other than, if you like, just normal people living their lives in their culture. And then somehow, and we don't know how, they get leprosy. They get this seemingly contagious, horrible, incurable skin disease that is probably going to kill them. And then to add to that, they are put out of their jobs, their home their families, their communities. I mean, it's bad that we as a nation have people sleeping on the street, and it's good that churches and other charities try and help them. So it's bad, but it's good. But at least we as a, as a nation are not saying, in a sense, it's good they're on the street, and they should be out of town. That's really what's going on here. 
the nation that says, actually, you people, go live out there. Don't even come in here. So it is bad upon bad. All ten of them end up with nothing. They're strangers. They're outcasts. They've got no status. They've got no family. They've got no hope. Because this illness, which they can't control, is the thing that has now caused them to be ostracized from everything that they know. There's nothing they can do about that. They're all in this same terrible place. They've got this terrible disease and their respective communities are treating them terribly as well. Just at the time of life when they need support most, they get kicked out. Kicked out of home, kicked out of communities, kicked out of family. It is misery upon misery for these ten. But what's interesting is that nine acted one way and one acted a completely different. And that's really what I want to look at this morning. Let's think about the nine. Let's think about the nine and how they acted, and maybe why they acted like they did. See, I've heard sermons about this, and basically it goes, they just weren't very thankful. I've got to be honest with you, I think that's a bit shallow. I don't think that really hits the mark for me when I look at this. Jesus expresses surprise, shock, disappointment by their lack of thank, thanklessness. Like They didn't even come back to say thank you. I mean, even if they don't know who Jesus is, even if they don't understand or believe who it is who's healed them, one moment you have leprosy, you go along to a guy on a road and cry out to him to heal you. He tells you to go see a priest, you're on your way, you get miraculously healed. What is one thing that you would do? You'd go back and say thank you, wouldn't you? I mean, you should go back and say thanks. You've just been given your lives back. You've been given families back. Husbands back, kids back, jobs back, placing your community back. No longer are you going to be living rough on the edge of town, scratching around for enough food to, to survive. Not only has Jesus done this mighty miracle that's got you healed, but actually the effect of that healing is going to transform your life completely. This is not, before Christmas, I got man flu. I got man flu. What did I do? I spent four days in bed. But, you know, get it. if I would have been healed from man flu, all it would have meant was I would have got up after day one, not after day four. It wouldn't have transformed my life. These, these guys, their healing was not only amazing and miraculous in and of itself, but it absolutely transformed their lives. You would have thought they would have gone back. They should have gone back, but they didn't. So it leaves me with a question. Why? Why didn't they go back? And if you can answer that, please come up here now. And they must have been delighted with their change of circumstances. They must have been delighted that they were now not going to have to live separate and apart from their loved ones. They must have been delighted that they could now go back to loved ones and home and community. I'm sure that's what they had been longing for and praying for to whichever God they did or didn't believe in and longing for and desperate for every day since they got this disease. I'm sure that as soon as they were healed, they rushed back to everything and everyone they knew, which is absolutely understandable and right. But what is shocking to me from this story is that they seem to be so consumed, so self-focused, so focused upon the change in their circumstance that they pay no attention to the one who has changed their circumstance. 
Do you see that? They seem so consumed, so focused on their change of circumstance and what it means for them that they seem to completely pay no attention to the one who has changed their circumstance. Even though they were living a normal life, had everything taken away from them, then had everything restored, somehow that experience hadn't taught them, hadn't made them think about anything further or deeper than their immediate circumstances. Basically, after all they'd been through, they still can't see any further than the nose on their face. Even though their lives have hit rock bottom, and even though God through Jesus has physically healed them and literally turned their lives around and literally given them back everything that they had before and longed for, only one of them out of the ten actually looked beyond the change of circumstances and saw the hand of God, the one who had changed their circumstances. Even though the nine were with the other one when they went and pleaded with Jesus to have pity on them. And he did have pity on them. They simply, I think, so consumed, so focused on themselves, their change of circumstances, that they seem to apparently ignore him, forget him. It kind of leads me to a couple of other verses. They may or may not come up behind me. But see, when the Bible says that sin effectively has blinded the minds of, the, of unbelievers... That the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. I think this is a graphic example of that. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. If ever there's a moment when who Jesus was is displayed in what he did and what he said to these nine lepers, it was here, but guess what? They're blinded. They can't see him. How about this from Matthew 13? Jesus quoting from Isaiah. And this is the message uh, translation, which I don't often like, but I like it here. Matthew 13, 15. Your ears are open, but you don't hear a thing. Your eyes are awake, but you don't see a thing. The people are blockheads. They stick their fingers in their ears so they won't have to listen. They screw their eyes shut so they won't have to look. So they won't have to deal with me face to face and let me heal them. These nine don't do anything wrong. They don't sin by getting leprosy. But what these nine do show us is how thoroughly sin, which is a willful refusal to acknowledge God and submit to his ways, has ended up blinding humanity to him. That even when everything is taken away, and even when God in the person of his son Jesus comes and personally and physically and miraculously turns it around, they don't acknowledge him, they don't follow him, they don't even go back and say thankful to him. I don't think these nine simply represent unthankful people. We know we can be unthankful, but I think that's too simple and shallow an explanation of their action. I actually think they represent how lost and how blind men and women are towards God because of our pride and our sin and our rebellion. Our insistence that we will do it, in the words of Frank Sinatra, my way. I will not do it God's way. 
And I do not care what God thinks about that. They are unthankful, but it's because they are blind to God through sin and are therefore unthankful. Are you with me? They're not unthankful and therefore they don't acknowledge God. They don't acknowledge God because they're blind to God. And therefore they are unthankful because they can't even see the hand of God who has healed them. So one of the lessons we can learn from the nine as Christians is this. People are completely lost and completely blind and completely dead until and unless Jesus seeks and saves them. Which is why we must pray that Jesus will seek and save the lost. They will not find him by their own endeavours any more than you and I, if you're a Christian this morning, found him by our endeavours. We were lost. We were blind. We were spiritually dead until Jesus came and found us and opened our eyes and gave spiritual life to us. Listen, if dramatic experiences, either good or bad, could get people saved, these nine should be saved. Shouldn't they? These nine should be saved. I don't think anything's going to happen in the life of your family and friends who don't know Jesus that's more dramatic than this. But dramatic things, good or bad, don't get people saved. God can use dramatic experiences. He did that for the one. Of course he can. But unless he moves and touches people's hearts, then the sad truth is because of sin, people are so focused So absorbed by their circumstances, they literally cannot, they will not look any further. They will not look any deeper. My brother's not a Christian. And a couple of years ago, he nearly died from a massive bleed on his brain. And the doctors didn't think he'd make it. In fact, the doctors were texting each other when he lived overnight Because they thought that when they went away from surgery that night, that he would be dead. We were all praying for him as a family. I think it's a miracle that he is alive. Now, is my brother thankful that he's alive and didn't die? Yes. Is he thankful that we prayed for him as a family, as church? Yes. Is he thankful to be back with his wife and kids? Yes. Has it made him search for the God who created him and sustains him and gave him life and I believe sustained him through this illness? No, it hasn't. See, passages like this and real life stories like my brother make me read some of the things that Jesus said and I realize again that he wasn't joking and he wasn't exaggerating. Jesus said people were lost. He didn't say they're a little bit confused and a bit straight off the path, they'll get there somehow. He said they were lost. Jesus said people were blind. He didn't say they could only see a little bit and, you know, it's okay if you get them glasses and big enough signs, they'll find that. Jesus said, no, 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 they're blind. They can't see a thing. Jesus said people were spiritually dead. He didn't say that they're in ill health, struggling to breathe. You can just go and help them a bit. He said they were dead. And I think that this story with these nine lepers is a graphic example of this. Just how lost, how blind through sin humanity is. That's what I think was going on with these nine lepers. So we must pray. We must pray. We've got a week of prayer coming up. One thing we must pray for is that God would move and touch people's hearts. 
that Jesus would come and wake people up, that Jesus would do what Jesus said he was coming for, which was to seek and save the lost. To seek and save the lost. We must pray for that. But also we can look at this and we can learn some lessons from the one and how he acted and maybe why he acted like he did. Because if their unthankfulness was because they couldn't see beyond their circumstances, this one, well, his thankfulness, I think, came because he, he saw beyond his circumstances. He could see beyond his healing, wonderful as it was and life-changing as it was, and he got to see the one who had healed him. He saw past his healing. His thankfulness came because he'd seen the object of and the reason for his healing. He saw the object of and he saw the reason for his healing. That Jesus, the Son of God, had just stepped into his life and wanted a relationship with him. The two things that he does are very revealing. Firstly, it says he praises God loudly. In other words, he has found an object for his thankfulness. He's found someone to say thank you to. And that is God. That God has done this. God has changed things. I once heard a quote that the problem with the 21st century is not that we have nothing to say thank you for. Because as a generation, we have got more than any generation that went before us. But the truth is, we have no one to say thank you to. The Samaritan has an object for his praise and his thanks, and that was Jesus. And the second thing he does, which is revealing, is that he comes and he thanks Jesus and he lies prostrate at his feet. So he's not only found an object of his thankfulness, but he's found a reason for that. That Jesus has just stepped into my life. Jesus, the Son of God, has just met me on a road and changed my life. The reason for his thankfulness is actually not his healing. And it's not his change of circumstances. They were just a means of introduction. But the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, has now become his Lord, his Savior, his friend. He's not lying at Jesus' feet because he's afraid. He's lying there out of love. He's literally saying, I'm going to lay down my life at your feet, Jesus. Because you are worth everything that I am and have. Of course he was pleased that he got healed. Of course he was pleased that his circumstances have changed. But his thankfulness, his praise, his worship came from a place of realizing that Jesus has just stepped into my life and my life is not going to be the same again. See, the truth is, if all we live for is the here and now, which is what the other nine were living for, then Jesus can even heal life-threatening illnesses. It won't make us turn to him it won't make us thankful towards him. But if we realize that the Son of God has just stepped into our lives, like the Samaritan realized, by his grace, the Son of God has just stepped into my life, then whether the circumstances are good or bad in the here and now, we can still remain thankful. If Jesus is the object of and the reason for our thankfulness, who he is, the fact he's come, the fact he's come into our life. Whatever the circumstances, we can be thankful because we're not thankful that we've got an easy life. We're not thankful that our circumstances have changed for the better. The nine were thankful that their circumstances have changed for the better and they didn't look towards God. 
the one realize my circumstances have changed for the better because God is interested in me. Because Jesus is interested in me. That's the difference, I believe, between the nine and the one. If Jesus is the reason for our thankfulness, who he is that he's come into our life, it's about knowing him. It's about knowing that he died for us and that when we die, we'll live forever with him because he said we would. But if our circumstances are the object of and the reason for our thankfulness, then we won't be able to see any further or deeper than these nine lepers. See, can you imagine what this one Samaritan guy did for the rest of his life? I don't think he kept quiet about what had happened to him. See, when you read in the Bible that one person got saved and they went back and told their whole village, I might read it and go, oh yeah. I reckon this Samaritan guy did that. I reckon he went back. I mean, if he's a Samaritan and he gets saved, he goes back, he's praising God, he throws himself at Jesus' feet. I reckon that when he went back, everyone said, what happened to you? How comes you're not leprous anymore? What do you think he said? Oh, the NHS did me a job. No. I reckon he said, Jesus Christ, save me. We just don't know, do we? We don't know the number of people that he told. We just don't know, but I'm sure he would have told loads. We don't know. Who knows? How much was this guy involved when the early church spread throughout the Roman world, the message of the gospel? We don't know. I reckon we'll find out in heaven, but I don't know how we'll find out in heaven. But I, I reckon we will. I know this. I want to be like that one Samaritan guy. Living my life, praising God, that others might know that I believe in him, and at the same time, living my life, laying at Jesus' feet, saying, you are the Lord, you're everything to me. That's how I want to be. So my challenge to myself, and you can take it up if you want to, are we going to be like the one, or are we going to be like the nine? Are we going to be like the one, or are we going to be like the nine? See, day to day, we can be like the nine. We can basically ignore Jesus, who he is, who he's done, and in effect, we can blind ourselves and we can become, we can choose to be as ungrateful as the nine. Kind of getting on with life as we are, in our own strength and wisdom, kind of completely ignoring Jesus, getting on with our own thing, our own way, and our own strength. The Holy Spirit, who has all power and wisdom, sitting on the sides because he only comes into the game when Jesus says, into the game. We can be like that. Or we can be like the one who every day comes to Jesus and we realize again, no, no, Jesus, you are the object of and the reason for my thankfulness. Not my circumstances, not my situation, not whether things have gone well or badly, you. You, Jesus. <laughs> you, Jesus, son of God, who came to earth, died on the cross, rose again, gave me new life who found me when I was lost, gave me sight when I was blind, gave me new life when I was dead. We've got to make this choice. Do we live our life like the nine, or do we live our life like the one? I know for me, 2020, I'm going for the one. Never really getting over the fact that Jesus has stepped into my life. Taking time to count our blessings, understanding that they all come from his hand. See, I think... If you're like the one, over time, what we might develop is an attitude of gratitude. 
an attitude of gratitude, which is a good thing. If you're going to be like the nine, I think the danger is that you compare yourself, your life to others. And do you know what people say about comparison? They say it's the thief of joy. Because no matter what you are, who you are, there's always someone that apparently has more than you. And so if you're going to be like that, rather than having gratitude, you'll probably become miserable. Thankfulness is not a commodity you can just buy or a feeling you can create. And you certainly won't get thankful by simply telling yourself to be thankful. Do you know, most of the self-help books are very selfish. They basically tell people, be thankful to others because then you'll be happy. It's about as selfish as it gets, in my opinion. But I might be wrong. To be genuinely thankful, you need two things. You need someone to be thankful for, and you need something to be thankful for. Someone and something. And if you're a Christian here this morning, like I am, that's what we have. We have someone in Jesus who we can be thankful to, and we have something that he's done, namely dying on the cross for us, stepping into our lives, giving us new life that we can be thankful for. I think that's what the story of the ten lepers teaches me. That's how God made us to be. We require something that's a bit more certain, that's a bit more sure. We can't just think thankful thoughts and be thankful. We need something that's a bit more certain, a bit more solid, which I think is why Jesus says, I'm the rock. If you build your life on me, you'll never want for anything. So 2020, my plea is that if you're a Christian, we would not live independent of Jesus. We would not ignore him. We would not be ungrateful towards him. But rather, like this one Samaritan, we would come to him day by day, remembering who he is, what he's done, laying ourselves at his feet. If you're not a Christian here this morning, then I want to say to you that this morning, Jesus makes the same offer to you, in essence, as he made to these folks we've been looking at. He holds out his arms. He literally says, I will give you spiritual life. I want a relationship with you. Will you bow the knee to me? I wonder whether we can close our, close our eyes. I'm just going to say a prayer. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, and you want to give your life to Jesus right now, then I want to just give you an opportunity to do that. You don't need to do it out loud, because God knows your thoughts. I'm just going to say a very simple prayer. If you want to give your life to him this morning. Just say it after me in your heart. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for the things that I've done wrong that have offended you. I'm sorry for the years that I've lived in rebellion to you. I thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. And I thank you, Jesus, for stepping into my life. And I lay down my life for you this morning, Jesus. Please come into my life. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Please let me know that you are my friend and my saviour 
and my Lord from this day forward and every day of my life. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great, thanks, Kevin.